I've entitled the message today, Idols and Demons. It's not often that we talk uh, specifically about demons. Of course we do when we, we come to the subject in the biblical text. But um, what, what we're going to see today is that um, I, I think even if, we, even if we reference demons, we immediately think of something spooky. And there, there probably is uh, that component to it. But what we're going to see as well is that um, the demonic can be very sophisticated. And it's not just this, this creepy sort of a thing. It is uh, the way the enemy operates in the world is through the demonic influence. And sometimes that creeps into the church. And that's really what Paul is dealing with here. So he says in verse 14, he says to them, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. So when Paul says, Flee idolatry. He's giving the same command that he had given earlier about sexual immorality. So we've, we've talked much about the problems in the Corinthian church. Uh, they, they were believers, but much of the time they were behaving like they were not believers. They were, they were new people in Christ, but they were often living like they had lived before. And so Paul had addressed the issue of uh, sexual immorality with them, and he uh, kind of concluded that, that exhortation there with the same word, flee sexual immorality. So just as many of the Corinthians had adopted the culture's views on sex, views and practices that were putting them at odds with God's call to be holy, so they were doing something similar with idolatry. Idolatry, as we've seen, permeated the culture, but like sexual immorality that had permeated the culture, it too made its way into the church. And we have seen in looking at this passage that as I pointed out many times, it's a long uh, argument beginning in chapter 8, verse 1, going all the way to uh, the end of this chapter, we've seen that there were some that considered themselves strong, who had concluded that since an idol was nothing, there was no need to be concerned about the dangers of idolatry. So, Remember where Paul starts off and he says, we, I know that we all have knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. So this is the state of this group of people. They're, they're, pride, uh, they're prideful. They're puffed up over the knowledge that they have. So when Paul says something about idolatry, they're like, oh, Paul, look, we, you know, we're smart enough to know that an idol really is nothing. There, there's only one God. You taught us that. Um, so their tendency was to downplay the seriousness of the idolatry. 
And so they concluded that um, they could even go as far as eating in the idols' temples, and they did so with contempt toward anyone who questioned them. They, they had a contemptuous attitude toward the people who were bothered by this and, and thought that this probably wasn't the thing that Christians ought to be doing. And so they just dismissed that. And that was their arrogance that was coming through. So as we pointed out, Paul is addressing this in several ways, having begun in chapter eight, where he told them that even if they were technically right about an idol being nothing, that Paul agreed that that's true. But even if they're technically right, if they were stumbling their weaker brothers and sisters, they were wrong and sinning. So that, that's kind of the gist of the eighth chapter. Then in chapter nine, he showed how he and Barnabas had laid down certain of their rights so as to not in any way hinder the gospel or become themselves disqualified through the unwise use of their liberty. And then finally, in the first part of chapter 10, he warns them not to let what happened to the children of Israel happen to them. The children of Israel, although they were saved out of Egypt, they ended up perishing in the wilderness and never entered the promised land. Why? Because they were not careful about tending to their spiritual lives. And that is the problem with this group of people in Corinth. They're very careless when it comes to their spiritual lives. They're very much inclined to uh, live on the border rather than um, having both feet firmly planted in Christ and the gospel. So here in the verses that we read, verses 14 through 22, he's going to tell them that there actually is something bigger than the idol that's going on here. He's going to tell them that there is a connection between idols and demons and warn them once again about the dangers. Here it is, the dangers of exercising their liberties to the point of being entangled back in sin as the Israelites were. So, verse 14, therefore, my dear friends. So, pointed this out at the uh, conclusion of the last teaching. But, you know, so Paul loves this group of people. I mean, God sent him there. God gave him uh, a ministry there. Uh, the Lord used him powerfully to establish this church. But again, they're, they're drifting away from the things that Paul taught them. So throughout the letter, there, there are these moments where Paul is very firm with them. There's points where he's sarcastic. He seems even harsh. But he's trying to snap them out of their delusional thinking. But ultimately, it's out of his love for them. And we see that here. Therefore, my dear friends. So 
I'm not, I'm not saying this just out of frustration or anger. I'm saying this out of love. I'm telling you this because you need to hear it because you can't see that you're in danger. And so, my dear friends, so his tone changes. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. And then I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And now he wants to show them that in worship, there is a connection between the worshiper and the deity that is being worshiped. And he is going to point just directly to worship within the church. And then he's going to go back and he's going to look at worship in Israel. And then he's going to um, show a parallel with the pagan worship. So, What does he say in verse 16? He says, is not the cup of blessing for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? So this is what they understood. They understood that when they were gathered together and when they were partaking in the cup and in the bread, that they were were participating with Christ. And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, We who are many are one body, for we all share in the one loaf. So his his point is simply this. We, We get it. When we gather to worship, we are expecting, and rightfully so, that the presence of God is among us. That's what's happening. We're participating in the the blood and the body of Christ. In other words, we are having communion with the Lord. And then he goes to Israel as another illustration of the same point. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Among the Israelites, there were a number of sacrifices that were to be offered, but there was what was called the peace offering. And this is the one that Paul's referring to here because the peace offering was an offering where you took your sacrifice, it was offered by the priest on your behalf, but then part of it was given back to you to sit and enjoy a meal that was understood as a fellowship meal. You were now partaking of the same sacrifice that was offered to God, so you were having a time of communion with God. So that was true in the church. That was true in ancient Israel. And so here's what he concludes. Do I mean then that food sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. So he says he's not changing his position that uh, he agrees that an idol really in the end, it's, it's a... It's made of metal, it's made of wood, it's made of stone, whatever the case might be. The idol itself isn't anything, but here's what they need to understand. The sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, 
not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. So the sacrifices of pagans, Paul, Paul just comes out and says it, the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons and not to God. Now, Paul understood this from the scriptures themselves. The Old Testament scriptures taught this. So whether it was Leviticus 7, 17, 7, or Deuteronomy 32, 17, or 2 Chronicles eleven fifteen, or Psalm 106, verse 37, in those four places, there are references there to the sacrifices of the pagans, and specifically, it was stated that they were sacrificing to demons, not to God. So Paul, on scriptural authority, tells them this is what's actually going on here. And then he says, you cannot drink the cup of demons and the cup of the Lord. You cannot have part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. And then he asks, are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? In other words, he's saying, what are you guys thinking? What he's telling them is, look, if you persist in this, you will bring God's judgment upon yourself. Because in engaging in these idol temples, you are participating with the demonic. Now, that brings up the question, what are demons? What, what are demons? Well, demons are evil, unclean spirits. The Bible tells us that there is, beyond the, the material world that we live in, that there is actually a spiritual realm. There's a, a spiritual dimension in which spiritual beings reside. They live there. And those beings are either holy angels, that's one group, and the other group are fallen angels. Fallen angels who are evil and unclean spirits. Uh, Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, he refers to them as principalities and powers. And when he uses those terms, what he is wanting to communicate to us is that these spirits, they have dominion over regions. They rule places. That's why I said earlier about the situation in Watts. It's more than just getting a building. It's the fact that demonic powers, principalities, are having dominion over these communities. And that's why we see what we see there. That's why we see the drug trade. That's why we see prostitution. That's why we see murder. And it's true in Watts, it's true in Chicago, it's true in Philadelphia, it's true in all of the places where we see these kinds of things going on. This is the activity of the demonic. And the demonic, since 
since we're talking about the spiritual realm, the spiritual realm cannot be affected through mere physical means or material means. It can only be affected spiritually. So principalities and powers, Paul refers to them as the rulers of the darkness of this age. The rulers of the darkness of this age. Wicked spirits in heavenly places. In that, that's from Ephesians chapter six. You might want to look at that on your own. But back in the second chapter of Ephesians, Paul speaks about uh, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. So he's speaking about the devil. He's speaking about this, this force that's, that's in the air. It's the spirit of the age. See, as we look at the world today, we wonder how, how have things gone so crazy so quickly? How has it just become this, this chaotic thing that, that is not limited to any one location? It, it just seems like the whole world is in this chaotic state. This is the activity of the demonic. This is what they do. And as I'm saying, this, this cannot be um, defeated by anything that we in ourselves can conjure up. This, this can only be defeated by the power of God. So, those are the demons. What are the idols? And I want to consider what are the modern day idols. So we have a bit of an understanding of what the idols were like in Paul's day, at least some of the temples and the different gods and goddesses that were worshipped. And as I pointed out previously, we still have literal idol temples in many places around the world today. So remember I pointed out that just at face value without any need to try to take a principle and apply it to where we're at here in Southern California, there are people all over the world that have an idol temple that they go to, they offer sacrifice, they eat a meal, they do that. So the application to them is... is very simple and straightforward. Don't do that. But when we talk about idolatry for us, then we start to wonder, well, what, what, is that, what does that mean today? What does that look like for us today, particularly in the West? Well, maybe you remember Pastor Chuck used to talk about uh, an idol being anything that was the master passion of one's life. An idol was anything that, that took the place of God, basically, became the thing that you were devoted to. Timothy Keller put it this way. He said, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. 
Therefore, one can make anything into an idol. It's true. An idol can be anything. It could be another person. It could be a group of people. It could be a material thing. It can be an ideology. It can be an identity. And what we are seeing in the culture today is an increase in idolatry. That's what's happened. We have become a nation of idolaters. That, that's the explanation for what is going on. And it's not just limited to our nation. But we are steeped in idolatry. And we do have actual idol temples that people go to. And then we have these other kinds of things that people would not even necessarily understand our idols, but that's exactly what they are because they are the ideologies or the identities or whatever it is that they are living for, that they are committed with everything in them to, and that they are believing that this is where my happiness and this is where my fulfillment and this is where my meaning and purpose in life, this is where it comes from. It's happening all around us. Common cultural idols are money or possessions, we could include that, power, sex, self. Now, the ancient idols, they were these images that represented these ideas. So all we've really done in the modern age is we've done away with the images sometimes, but the ideas are still there. The ideas are still very much in place. You know, in, in the Old Testament, uh, the books of Kings, for example, the ministry of Elijah, you have uh, all these references to Baal and to Asherah and the, these idols that were worshiped in the land. And did you know that these were fertility gods and goddesses but the, the means of worshiping the fertility gods and goddesses was through sexual activity. So the, the idea was that these gods and goddesses, because it was um, fertility, it, it had to do with agriculture, it had to do with um, you know, your crops and things like that. I mean, they had... Uh, created these, these stories where these gods and goddesses actually had sex with the created world and produced the crops and things like that. So their followers were to do similar kinds of things. So sex has been an idol <laughs> for millennia. It's not new. That's why when we read in the pages of scripture, we find that, again, with sexual things, for example, we find that many of the behaviors that are current were happening then. People talk about various sexualities as being progressive 
We are progressing in our understanding of sexuality. So we're no longer limited to the idea of heterosexuality. We're no longer limited to the idea of one uh, man and one woman for life. Uh, those are archaic. Those are outdated. We're progressing. We're discovering new uh, understandings of sexuality. But the problem is they're not new. Turn to the book of Leviticus. You can find them right there thousands of years ago. Because these things have always been the case. So money, power, sex, self. And I think N.T. Wright, he put it well here. He said, in describing what happens when a person engages in idolatry, he said this, when human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship, not only to the object itself, but also outward to the world around. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sex objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. These, are, these and many other forms of idolatry combine in a thousand ways, all of them damaging the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and of those whose lives they touch. Now, N.T. Wright is a Bible scholar. He is basically just putting in contemporary terms what the psalmist said. In Psalm 115, and also it is repeated in Psalm 135, this is what the psalmist said. Idols have mouths, but they can't speak. Eyes, but cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear. Noses, but cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel. Feet, but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Wow. So that's what happens. You, you give yourself over to idolatry, and you become the thing you worship. But remember, the power behind the idol is demonic. And the demonic intention for human beings is destructive. Demons have one goal with people, destruction. But they lure the temptation. They lure people in with the idea that, oh, this is gonna be wonderful. This is gonna be fulfilling. This is where you're gonna find out who you really are. This is, this is where you're gonna have that success that you've longed for. And people take the bait, they go in, but they find that they do not deliver what they promised. So here's the question. Where is the church 
in danger of engaging in this kind of idolatry. So in Paul's day, here it's obvious what the situation was. And again, uh, there would be Christians in certain parts of the world where the exact situation that Paul described would be something that they would also have to deal with. But since most of us aren't tempted to go to the idol's temple and eat the sacrifices, where is the application for us with this? Well, there, there are a few things I'd, I'd say. Number one, churches that seek to accommodate the culture's sexual norms are engaging in idolatry and fraternizing with demons. Churches that seek to accommodate the culture's sexual norms. And believe me, this is happening. This is happening all over the place. Churches are, um, you know, churches which are to stand upon the word of God and churches which are to put forth um, the standard of God and, and, you know, the ethic of the scripture in sexual ethic and otherwise uh, are, are caving in to the cultural pressure and no longer willing to call out sin. This is an idolatry. It's like the culture is idolizing sex and the church in some segments of it is, is just jumping on board with the same thing. A few years ago, a friend of mine that I've gotten to know, his name is Sam Albury. Uh, Sam is British. Sam is an Anglican vicar by his ordination originally. Uh, he spends a lot of time in the U.S. today. He's an author of several books. He is a same-sex attracted person who lives a celibate life in his dedication to Jesus. He was brought before a synod in England um, where some in the Church of England are, are pushing and promoting same-sex relations, marriage, ordination, all of those kinds of things. And because they're pushing that, they're pushing back against people who would um, oppose it or disagree with it. And, and Sam is there in this synod, and I mean, it was like a Martin Luther moment where he's standing before all of these you know, leaders of the Anglican church, and he's basically saying, I am trying to live as a same-sex attracted person, I'm trying to live out the biblical sexual ethic and I am being persecuted by you for trying to live the way Jesus told me to live. That, that is a reality. That's happening. That's one thing. Here's another. This is even more hot than the last one. Churches that have replaced the message of God's grace with a political message 
are engaging in the idolization of politics and fraternizing with demons. That is happening hugely in the church in America today. It's no longer the, the gospel being the center, Christ being the center, uh, sinners needing to be saved. It, it is now, we gotta save the nation. It's a political message and it is idolatry. It is idolatry. You know, you can live in a nation, be thankful for the nation, be patriotic about the nation, but when you start to worship the nation, you have crossed a line and that's what many are doing today. It's an idol. And it brings in the influence of the demonic. And one of the ways that we can see the demonic influence in this is the division that it is creating and the slander and the hostility and all of those things that are being said within the Christian community. You know, the church is probably more divided today than it's ever been in my lifetime, for sure. I mean, there, there is a civil war within the church. I, I was watching a video the other day of a man who um, is part of another denomination, but the denomination is, um, you know, kind of split down the middle when it comes to political ideas, but not, it's not like one is obviously in a, in a camp that you just could not possibly be in and, and the other is, oh, they're just so clearly right that how could you resist it? Um, it's more nuanced than that, but I was, I was listening to the interview of, of one of the persons who is kind of in that, that side of, of this denomination that would be I think, given over more to idolizing the nation. But the thing that was fascinating to me was how he saw things so clearly that God was on his side and their side, and that all that they were saying and doing was for the sake of the truth and the gospel, and those who were opposing them were basically the enemy. But the people that he's talking about who were opposing them, they're not liberal, whacked out, deny the Bible people. They're people who love Jesus, love the word of God, faithfully proclaim the gospel, but they have uh, some nuanced political differences. So this then turned them into the enemy. And I'm watching this and I'm thinking, wow, this is, this is just reminiscent of the Civil War because remember in the Civil War, you had the North and the South and guess what? Both of them thought that God was for them. They both thought they were serving God. They both thought that the cause that they were fighting for was the cause of God. And that is happening in the church today and it's become an idol. Thirdly, churches that have rejected the authority of scripture and put human reason above God's word are engaging in idolatry and fraternizing with demons. And this is happening in so many ways. 
that God's word is no longer the authority, but, but human reason and wisdom now trumps the word of God. And so, well, we know the Bible said that, but now we know today that that isn't true. And so this is how we understand things today, and the Bible uh, evidently got it wrong in this place. Churches take those, that kind of a position, and those that do have fallen into idolatry. They're idolizing human reason. They're idolizing the intellect, and they're opening themselves up for the demonic. Now, this is where I began today. Don't think of demons only in the context of the Gadarene who was screaming out, cutting himself, and living among the tombs. That's one manifestation of demonic activity. And I would say that's the desired place that demons want to take humans to a place where their lives are so decimated by, by sin and bondage that they are like that man of Gadara that we read about in Mark chapter five. But remember, the Bible also speaks of doctrines of demons. And like I said, the demonic can be very sophisticated. When you look at some of the historical heresies that rose up in the early centuries of the church that were all entangled in Greek philosophy, some of these arguments are so amazingly sophisticated. You read them and you think, wow, that, that's high-minded stuff there. Well, that's demonically inspired. So we have to understand that. There are doctrines of demons that we must be on our guard against. And there is even a wisdom that is demonic. According to James chapter three, James warns about a wisdom that shows up in selfish ambition and bitter envy. And he said, that wisdom is not from above, but it's, it's earthly, it's sensual, it's demonic. It's demonic wisdom. So demons are alive and well. Idolatry is alive and well. We have to take it seriously. And Paul's whole point, as I said, to them is really stop being careless with your spiritual life. Stop trying to live on the border and get yourself fully planted in Christ and live for him. That's what Paul is saying. And remember, you can make an idol of anything. All of us have the potential to do that. John Calvin said that the human heart was an idle factory. I think he was right. We can, we can make an idol of anything. We can just put things before God. 
And we end up worshiping and serving those things. And understand this, when we do that, we will give the devil space to work in our lives. And we really don't want to do that, do we? We don't want to give the devil any space at all. So one way we can avoid giving him many spaces to make sure that we don't tolerate idols, that we don't let something take the place of who God is to us, that we are not trying to find our fulfillment, we are not trying to find our happiness, our purpose, our acceptance in ideologies or in identities or in any of those things, that's idolatry. But that we find our identity, our purpose, our life in Christ, worshiping him and him only. John, the apostle, closes his little letter, 1 John, we call it, with these words, little children, Keep yourselves from idols. Wow. So Lord, help us as we live in an idolatrous society. Help us, Lord, to be on our guard. Help us to recognize the culture's idols. Help us to recognize the things that we might end up idolizing and thereby giving the enemy a foothold. Lord, help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit would say. And Lord, may we, may we worship you. Lord, may we take all those opportunities that you bring our way to commit ourselves and to devote ourselves to fully serving you, not in any way fraternizing with the enemy, not, not in any way embracing idolatry. Lord, maybe it's been sex, maybe it's been power, maybe it's been material, Maybe it's been self. Thank you, Lord, that with you there's forgiveness and restoration. And so as we spend this little bit of time here at the end, um, Lord, search our hearts. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting, Lord. That's our prayer today. Do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.